this, 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 this show is brought to you by Safety FM. What's up, peeps? Welcome back to Rebranded Safety. This is episode five of the mini series. Safety one, safety two, and we are talking to. Uh, I say this every. I've said this the last three episodes, haven't I? We're talking to a legend, but this guy actually is a legend. And I'm I'm going to go so far to say I think it was one of my favourite conversations in this mini series. It was great. It was really good. But anyway, I'll tell you more about what I thought in the reflection. But for this, is just a hook. We've not even started yet. Let's jump into the intro, and we can get into our conversation with John. The problem in safety isn't deviation, it's complexity. Health and safety has gone mad. Health and safety is trying to unpick having gone mad in the past. There's no one solution and one problem. The problem is that we are looking for one solution. Does the structure of the team allow them to flourish? Feel safe enough to be uncomfortable. The environment defines our behaviours. People aren't the problem, they're the solution. Rebranding safety, crushing the stereotype. Brought to you by Risk What's up, peeps? Welcome back to Rebranded Safety. Rebranded Safety, doing exactly what it says on the team. We're here to change your perception of health and safety. We're here to hit, hit, give it a rebrand. That's what we're here to do. And we do that on podcasts. We do that on YouTube as well. So if you're new here, hit those buttons and do all those good things on the algorithm. Today, we're talking to the one, the only, the legendary John the Legend Green. I genuinely think that should be his middle name. I think that actually flows really well. Can you imagine if he was a wrestler? John the legend green i think that's really good i like it i like it i'm gonna i'm gonna buy it on depot for him yeah i think that's a bit too far anyway make sure you check out next week's episode where i reflect on this conversation but for the time being let's get into our conversation with john he'll introduce himself and then we will just crack on with our conversation about safety one and safety two let's go Right, we're recording. So, John, thank you very much for coming onto the podcast. Welcome to Rebranded Safety. Pleasure. Pleasure. Um, I'm going to be extremely rude in this podcast and skip your whole epic career and skip towards <laughs> the safety differently part. And if anybody wants yeah. to check out your career, you had a very good conversation with uh, Blair on his podcast, didn't you? Where you kind of yeah the ins and outs, which was it was I listened to it the other day. It was quite good. Yeah, it's forty years, so there's a there's a there's a few things happened in those forty years, yeah. <laughs> and I was listening to it and I was thinking, Jesus, I feel really bad, but I I just kind of want to skip the first like chunk of it. And no, I'm, no, it's understandable. Safety differently, part. Oh, yeah. So, I mean, why don't you why don't you give us a brief inter- introduction to yourself? For anyone that doesn't know who you are. So I'm John Green. I'm the Vice President of Safety for SNC Lavalin, which is an infrastructure engineering company based out of Montreal. I've been in safety for over four decades now, um, but I'm probably either best or worst known, whichever whichever side of the the fence you come from, (laughs) for kind of pioneering some of the safety differently stuff originally in Australia and then in, uh, in Canada and Europe. Uh, so that's a very supported history really quickly of me that was very good very nice and it was very much. <laughs> i always worry when i say when i say give us a brief intro introduction yeah. you never know you're either going to get a brief one or you're going to get a life story 
Yeah, indeed, indeed. It's one of those words brief that you regret saying as soon as you've said it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so I, I kind of want to. So basically, this your your this interview or conversation is going to be a part of. Um, this mini series we're doing around safety one and safety two, not versus and. Yeah. and for me, it's, 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 it's more a learning journey for myself. Um, you know, I'm, I'm reasonably new to this new view. Um, so it, I think for the listeners, it's about understanding what the difference is. Why are we arguing? What's the arguments about? Are the arguments valid? You know, is there one side of the fence or the other? Should there be, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and it, it, I mean, it's a damn good pod, uh, mini series. We've got Todd Conklin, yourself, and uh, and Kelvin. I know you do quite a lot with Kelvin. Uh, oh, yeah. Kelvin, I think. yeah. Uh, and then yeah. we got on to some people that are like are doing it in, in the day jobs now with Adam Johns and, and Kevin Furness. Uh, yeah. And then finishing off with um, with David Provan, Dom Cooper, to just to kind of stir things up, and then uh, Carsten Bush as well. So uh, it, it, it kind of we kind of run it out to like hopefully at the end of it we'll be able to say, well we understand what it is, and and hopefully stop this bickering. Um, but we'll probably get into that in a minute. Yeah, when, yeah, that's fine. That's let, fine. Uh, uh, yeah. Go on. Go on. No, I think the, the the intellectual debate around it is is interesting. You're always going to get that when you, particularly with a, a, a kind of an inflammatory title like safety differently, mm. um, and that was never the intention to begin with. There's a bit of a history around that 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 phrase, um, but you can't call it safety the same because it's definitely not safety the same. So mm. what else do you call it apart from well, safety differently? But there's a, there's a there's a story behind that that name as well as to as to how it arrived. So um, we'll get to that. We'll get to that. Well, that 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 was pretty much where I was going to start. Is when you were sitting in that room with um with with Sydney and I think Kelvin was there as well, wasn't he? He was. Yeah, yeah. There was a few of us. And uh, that conversation around like what was that like, and and and, and what did you feel like from from safety the same or safety one? What do you feel like you weren't getting? That, that you needed or you know what was the, the kind of uh the leverage i suppose that lent you to the, yeah the, that room so a bit of, bit of context to the whole thing i guess i had um i had joined lang o'rourke um and had spent four or five years in europe with them uh, really instilling a kind of oil and gas high hazardry um, type of safety into, into a construction industry, which is why I joined, which is why Ray asked me to join, that he wanted a different view of safety into construction. And um, we'd gone a long way to doing the traditional stuff, reducing accident rates through better systems, more rules, better training, you know, better engineering controls, all of these sorts of things. And we bought a, a business out in, in Australia and he wanted the same thing done. Once we'd looked at this business, it wasn't performing as well as we had hoped. And um, he wanted really the same sort of rigor in the Australian business. So a number of us went over there and, and did what we had done in Europe and you know, replicated it with the same results. Um, and we got to a point where actually Australia was numerically performing better than Europe was. And we thought, well, so what do we do next? You know, what, what's after all of these rules and, and this big management system that we've imposed on people and all of this training 
um, which seems to be taking forever. What, what else do we do? Is it more of the same? And, and so we thought, well, let's have a look back at, at what's happening in Europe, because what, what's happening in Europe is likely to be what's happening next in Australia. You know, Europe had been doing this, this program for two years longer than we had. And it's reasonable to assume, given that we are in the same markets with the same sort of people, with exactly the same system, that whatever was happening in Europe would be happening in Australia next. Um, and we looked at Europe and we didn't really like what we saw. Uh, we saw ever increasing investment. We saw accident rates easing back up again. But more importantly, we saw three fatalities, fatalities which were occurring on projects that weren't getting a lot of safety attention. So there wasn't a lot of stuff happening on those projects that would alert us to the fact that something really serious was going to go wrong. In fact, nothing was happening. There was nothing bad happening at all. Um, and had it not been for these fatalities, I suspect those projects would have won safety awards from clients or from industry because there was nothing. You know, there were no first aid accidents, there was no lost time accidents. There were no significant new misses. There were nothing to say to traditional uh, safety metrics. You guys need to go over there because something is about to happen. So that's, this is right. This can't be something that we want to repl replicate and emulate in Australia. So it's not about more of the same. It must be about something different. Um, what is that? What is that different? And, and it so happened that I had dropped uh, Decker an email at uh, Griffith University, knowing that he was in Brisbane and I was in Brisbane at the same time. And he happened to respond saying, "Hey, tomorrow, there's a bunch of us getting together in Melbourne. You know, you talk about serendipity. If I'd done it a day later, it wouldn't have happened." And if I'd done it too much earlier, I suspect I would have probably changed my mind about going in the first mm. place. So I went down to, to Melbourne and my role originally was actually to kind of act as a foil to this Australian belief that they were pretty good at safety. So that in the morning, the room had 40 people in it and they were all debating about the future of safety in Australia. And, and Decker was there to kind of cajole and nudge and antagonize in a way that is uniquely Sydney. <laughs> and my role was, um, I was one of the first outsiders really to come into Australia with, uh, with an external view of safety. And so my, my role was really to say, I don't think safety is that good in Australia. I think you guys actually need to pick your game up a little bit, which is what I did. Um, now, I don't know if it was a result of what I'd said or what Decker had said, but after lunch, there was only five of us left. <laughs> so, <laughs> I don't know what had happened. Um, and those five were, you know, Sid, myself, Kelvin, Dan Homerdahl, hmm. and um, uh, Michael Tuma, uh, who's a lawyer, an OHS lawyer in Australia. And we just kind of shot the breeze for a wee while. And, and we thought, you know, what would be really cool would be to take... Sydney's ideas, academic ideas, and see whether or not we can develop a playbook around them and, and give it in exactly the same way as we give an SMS, a management system to project leaders. Perhaps there's something we can do with our existing management system to make it different and to really bring the three principles to light that people are the solution and not the problem. Safety is about getting things right. It's not about fixing things that have gone wrong. And it's a moral responsibility downwards to the workforce. In fact, so the effort should be to make work safer, not upwards in the organization, not bureaucratic. So that was 
that was really the start of it. And, and I have to say, philosophically, what we were aiming at was building a platform that would allow for freedom of thought. So we were quite willing. In fact, we welcomed other ideas coming in. Um, we weren't shut down. So Dan, Dan Hammerdahl and I were adamant that this should not become simply another church. So we wouldn't have the, the safety church that we have now, and then we would have this new safety church, and our mm. church would be much better, and you have to come and worship our gods, <laughs> because our god's right and your god's wrong. We were adamant it shouldn't become that. It would become a platform for different ideas and variation and challenge and curiosity and all of those sorts of things. And that's where the website came from. Okay. And the website was going to be safe. It was going to be safety dot differently. That's it was called. It was safety full stop differently. Um, but of course, you can't have a website with a dot in the middle. Uh, you know, it just the, the internet protocols won't accept it. So it, it became safety differently. The phrase safety differently, which is what everyone has cottoned on to. Mm-hmm. Um, and really, it, we took it from there. So. Within Langs, we, we took the ideas and we created a management system around that. Um, we, we continued with a number of Safety One ideas. We continued to investigate incidents. We continued to have rules. I mean, I, I get a bit upset, I have to say, with those who seem to think that this is about anarchy. You know, we throw all the rules away. We allow people to make their own rules. And, you know, there's no structure. It's just it's just chaos and that's you know that's not the case first of all you'd never be able to sell that to an organization and secondly it's not what you want what you do want are rules that make sense to people that apply in high risk situations that they understand um you don't want rules for everything i don't think um we still train people we still we still discipline them you know when when people deliberately sabotage the system people are still dealt with so it's not a case of you abandon all of these things and i do get annoyed with individuals who seem to try and scare others off with this notion that it's you know madness it's it's anarchy it's it's absolute freedom to workers to decide how they're going to go to work it's not that at all um if anything it returns to the to the origins of the 1974 health and safety at work act um, much more so than departs from legislative control at all. So I, I get a bit upset, but I also get upset at those on <clears throat> the, the, the safety differently um, camp who almost eulogize about how wrong the old ways were. Mm. Uh, you know, they, weren't, they weren't wrong, they were contemporary. Safety is a contemporary problem. Um, you know, when you bring a, an agrarian workforce in from the fields to work in industry, you have a different set of problems. The problems we have now, which is a highly experienced, highly intelligent workforce working in complex environments. The solutions to both those problems are very different. Mm. And, and the solutions to problems in 10 years will be different again. You know, I'm quite happy if, if someone in 10 years is on a podcast with you, James, saying, hey, you know that guy Green? What a lot of crap he spouted <laughs> 10 years ago, because it's contemporary. You know, these issues are contemporary. They're wicked problems that need contemporary solutions. Mm. And I'm quite sure in 10 or 15 years time, there will be something else that replaces what we are trying to do just now, because mm. the problems will be different. So that's the, that's the background to the whole thing, that famous 
we call it a, we, we like to we call it a smoke there was just a smoke filled room in melbourne it wasn't smoke filled it was in <laughs> melbourne but it just kind of gives it that atmosphere we call it a smoke filled room it was rather a nice office um it was an skc office if i remember rightly it was rather pleasant but there you go that's how it all started I, I really like the way you talk about it, John. A lot of things you say, you said there, and I've heard you say before, really, really resonate with the way I kind of think about this. And there's a couple of things I, I, I want to touch on. But the first thing that you said about, you know, the Health and Safety at Work Act. Um, I remember being um, we we do a YouTube channel as well, and um, and this this guy I knew from a local, basically, he he does a a YouTube channel. Uh, interviewing people that use video and YouTube, and it, but he he was a video guy. Nothing to like. He didn't know anything about safety. Just wanted to know how how are you kind of you know doing a safety channel on YouTube. Um, and he asked me this question, which which is stuck in my head ever since. But he said, "Oh, James, you know where where do you come up with this like innovative new way of looking at safety?" And I was like, "Well, firstly, it's it's not me. I'm just regurgitating much more intelligent people. But uh, secondly," I believe what we're talking about here is just safety as originally intended. Um, mm -hmm. When when I look at the Health and Safety at Work Act, and, and even when you look at a lot of the HSEs, gone, I mean, I've only worked in the UK, so I can only speak for the UK. But even when you look at some of the HSE guidance, it's very reasonable. A lot of it is yeah. very reasonable, very flexible, very kind of goal-based uh, goal, goal setting kind of targets and things like that for you to work for it gives businesses a lot of flexibility to be able to to innovate to, to kind of work around and, and come up with how, how it would work for them which to me sits really nicely in that world of, of new view safety differently safety to whatever yeah. you want to call it um, yeah absolutely so, the, so, so the 74 act um, you know prior to that with things like the 1961 Factories Act, um, with the Office 63, I think it was, Office Shops Railway Premises Act, there's a whole bunch of stuff um, that had very specific um, regulatory limits in it. So there was the, you know, the six foot working at height limit, there were the minimum temperatures for working, there was a whole bunch of stuff that specified rigid, strict limits. And most of those were swept away by the 74 Act when it came in. And the 74 Act became an enabling act rather than a piece of constraining legislation. 84, when the control of industrial major accident hazards came in, that was a, an attempt to say regulators can no longer keep pace with the rate of change in industry. You know, we're, we're just no longer able to say that you have to use a stainless steel pipe to this sort of grade, because the time by the time we've printed the legislation that specifies this, you found something better. Mm. So we moved to safety cases. We moved away from prescription towards safety cases. We moved away from control and constraint towards enabling legislation that allowed freedom within a framework. And those those approaches are entirely consistent, I think, with what we're trying to do just now. We have gone through cycle after cycle of adding rules. To management systems such that now they, they've become this bureaucratic burden um, on, on uh, organizations and have become confusing for those that they have they were originally meant to assist mm. so i think if you looked at most management systems you'd find a huge amount of redundancy in them so rules that 
no longer apply because the processes that they cover, you actually no longer work that way anymore. And um, correction and confusion. So if I, you know, if I meet this rule, I automatically um, flout, flout this particular rule. Mm. So, and, and people have to make these choices. They have to resolve all of these difficulties on a daily basis. Um, so I, I think actually what we're trying to do, this decluttering that Dave Proven talks about. Yeah. Um, I think actually what we're trying to do is, is, is really in line, as you say, with the intentions of the 74 Act. So mm. rather than be a departure from statutory compliance, I, I actually think what we're trying to do is very much in line with those original intentions in 74. Mm. Yeah, definitely. I agree. And, and, and you said as well, like, and you've, I've, I've heard you say before that, you know, we're not, we're not kind of throwing the baby out with a bathwater. We're not saying that everything we've done before is absolute dross. So anything that we class as safety one, did you get rid of that now? We're, we're doing, we're doing all the safety two. Um, and I think, I think I've heard, I might, might be wrong, correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I think you, you've kind of previously alluded to it, maybe safety one or the, the traditional way that we did safety or the work we've done to get us to this point action is kind of like the foundations that enable us to move on and, and do the safety differently kind of work. Yeah, I, so the, the work that's been done in the last couple of decades has been remarkable. You know, yeah. that, there's, you can't call it anything else. You know, the, the rate at which we have removed injury from the workplace and from industry has been remarkable. And, and I don't think you can do anything else but applaud the efforts um, of the last you know, couple of decades. And, you know, and I've been part of those. You know, I, was, I, you know, I spent most of my career probably working and supporting a, a safety one environment. Mm. And I, you know, I don't feel ashamed for that. But I, so I tell a story about, you know, imagine you're a, a really overweight guy, because people remember stories. Imagine you're a really fat guy and you go to the doctor and you tell the doctor that you're going to you know, run the London Marathon or you're going to take part in an Australian Ironman or you're going to win a gold medal and the doctor looks at you and says, look, mate, you're 32 stone. You're not doing anything like that. Okay, so what do I need to do? Well, you need to go away and lose a load of weight and you need to make sure that weight stays off and that you know, it doesn't return. So you go away for a couple of years and you diet and you eat well and you lose weight and you get down to something like 11 or 10 or 11 stone or something like that. And you go back to the doctor and you say, okay, I'm ready now, doctor. The doctor says, you're not ready. You're the right weight now, but now you need to get fit. Now you need to build resilience. And you see that kind of curve with a weight drop, weight loss, and then running along resilience and exercise. Now, both those tactics, both those strategies have exactly the same end goal in mind, but they couldn't be more different, independent of one another. You know, dieting, weight loss, and exercise are very, very different strategies, but they're entirely complementary mm. to this end goal. And I, and I think that story plays out for safety. You know, our end goal are um, resilient, successful organizations that look after their people and, and have low levels of harm, right? Now we've done the first bit, which is the weight loss. All those accidents have gone. They haven't come back. Um, and now we need to change tactic a little bit and start to look at resilience, recognizing that none of that can be the expense of rising accident rates. So of course we need to continue to do an awful lot of the stuff that we've already done. But we need to do different stuff 
and we need to look at the stuff that we've been doing differently. So it's different things and looking at things differently from now on. You know, entirely complementary strategies, very, very different, like safety one and safety two, but building upon and supporting one another. Mm. Where, where do you kind of think that this, because um, like, I think that there's a lot of like, I think dissented opinions and, and comfortable conflict on LinkedIn and most of the time is very, very good and outside of LinkedIn and conversations, whatever we do, it's all, it's all good stuff. I think, I think there's a, there's a great, um, well, I say great, it, it goes one way and then it goes the other, but there's a really good video out there of, um, of Todd and, and Scott Geller, you know. Oh yeah, yeah. Yeah. I think they, 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 they talk really well with each other, have a good debate and then it gets a bit, yeah, yeah it goes a bit downhill from there. But yeah. in the beginning, I'm like, you know, this is what we need to see more of, just a sensible debate. And so that is good. But it is, in my opinion, just for, I've spent a lot of time, unfortunately, on LinkedIn and it, it's just getting worse and worse. And it's now become not, not that comfortable debate that we, where we're all, like you say, trying to do the same thing. It, it's like we're, we're just we're just picking faults with each other, uh, focusing on our differences as opposed to focusing on what makes us similar. Um, but where where do you think that kind of comes from? Like, is it just human nature, maybe, and we we like arguing with each other, or or is it that kind of which you alluded to a minute a minute ago, maybe that slightly provocative language which Sydney likes to use in like uh, safety anarchist and and stuff like that? I think that kind of creates a little bit of a a misconception maybe yeah so you rarely actually see sydney involved in any of those exchanges online so <laughs> i don't know if he know. kind of lights the blue touch paper and retires um you know i like to think that every safety professional approaches safety with the right intentions that everyone is doing what they truly believe to be correct and um, that's what i like to think so regardless of where you sit on the spectrum safety one, safety differently, safety two, hop, I really don't care. I, I like to think that, that everyone in that approaches safety with the, with the right intentions, with the, with the view to doing the right thing. Um, but I do think that there's, there are elements of mischief creep, creeping in just now um, into, this, into this debate. I think there's a, de there's, a, there's a deliberate misunderstanding and antagonism creeping into it. I don't know if it's fear. Um, you know, sometimes sometimes safety folks are the most difficult to convince about the need to change. Um, you know, they've been used to doing safety a certain way for 30 years. Some of them, I suspect, have probably a career on, on a control and constraint dogma. They've probably built, um, you know, power based upon, upon that. And maybe they struggle with the idea of changing. Maybe they struggle with the idea that actually we need to let you know slip these changes a little bit and hand power um, to a different part of the organisation and give it away. Um, I think the sort of characteristics that we're looking for in safety people now are absolutely not the characteristics we were looking for ten years ago. Mm. You know, so we're looking for people who understand rule breaking. We're looking for people who are curious and inquisitive. We're looking for people who are adventurous and adaptive. I'm not sure these are the objectives that you would have used in a job description 10 or 20 years ago for a safety professional. Mm -hmm. And therefore, perhaps we have populations 
in the profession um, who just aren't ideally suited to this sort of change. I don't know, um, but I come back to the comment I made originally. I, I think everyone who works in safety approaches it with absolutely right intentions, with the belief that they're, they're doing the right thing. I think it's a real shame that um, the debates that we have, and some of them, some of the debates are really good. You know, um, I don't agree with Dom, um, and Dom doesn't agree with me, but that's cool. I don't, I don't mind that. You know, hell, I wouldn't like the, the world to agree with me. Uh, you know, because where would be the challenge? Where would be the opportunity to move on? Where would be the, where would be the opportunity to learn? Mm-hmm. So I don't mind that that happens, as long as it remains civil, mm-hmm. um, as long as it remains based upon the nature and content of the debate and the argument rather than the individuals. Um, and it's when it comes down to the individuals that, you know, I, I, you start to get a little bit um, concerned that the quality of the debate will drop um, and it just becomes a, you know, a, a slanging match between, mm. between individuals. And I've seen that on, on LinkedIn. I've seen that sort of thing develop on LinkedIn. And it's a real shame because I, I think safeties are a crossroads just now. I, I, you know, I, I do believe that we have a number of very serious choices to make if we are to continue to contribute uh, to industrial well-being, I, I think our future could be really rosy in terms of what we have to say about things, particularly post-COVID, because we've had a huge influence in organisations as they've gone through the the, uh, the pandemic. Or we could see ourselves sidelined, uh, you know, as industry marches on, marches on, and, and largely marginalises our efforts. So I, I think we've got a pretty big decision in front of us and I think it's a shame that uh, the, the debate around the direction we should be taking becomes uh, becomes personal and abusive yeah and I feel like now is the time as well John for that uh, as to the kind of critically look at how we've previously worked whether you want to call it safety one safety two or, or not even that let's let's imagine we lived in a world where we've all been safety one up until now we've hit a global pandemic which nobody knew was coming you know especially to places like england australia and america and things like that like and and now surely is the opportunity for us to learn from how we've operated you know we've saw as much as people don't like the word capacity if you're on that side of the camp but like we've seen a lack of capacity in the uk with with face coverings for example rpe you know in in the medical in in the healthcare system where we didn't have enough and then when we had enough we we didn't have enough people trained to be able to face fit uh tests and then when we didn't have that it was just another thing and another thing we we i had this interesting debate with todd um well i say interesting debate he he kind of uh shut me down uh and and told me told me i was wrong um but he asked for my uh my definition of safety and i said um I kind of view safety as efficiency um, and, he's, and he, that's when he jumped in and said, you know, efficiency is what's got us into this problem essentially. And that's well, actually, I think that's over efficiency. I don't even think that's efficiency. I think that's driving your car to, to the nth degree and never servicing it. You know, how we currently operate with like profit engineering, which is essentially just shaving mills off your chocolate bar. So no one will notice, but yet we save thousands of thousands of pounds. To me, that's not efficiency you know, having these contingencies and having some capacity to be able to fail safely, to me, that's efficient. You know, MOT in your car and servicing your car, checking your tires, et cetera, that's efficient. It's not, it's not inefficient to do that because it would be inefficient to break down. 
Um, so on that, on that note, we, we've gone to hit this global pandemic. We're now in a position where we've gone, well, some of the things we, we might have done is actually we're, we're, we were a little bit like too lean and we now need to build a bit of fat essentially so we're a bit com more comfortable. I think I feel like now is definitely opportunity for us to be having these sensible debates as how we can be better. Yeah, so I wouldn't say that no one saw the pandemic coming. Um, I think if you if you look back, there was there were plenty of individuals and, and and papers and research that said it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. Yeah, I, I think there were people who saw it coming. I think there was a lot of research that suggested that there was there was a virus similar to SARS and similar to MERS, which was much more communicable and much, much more easily transmittable. Uh, so I think there was enough people saw it coming. Um, and there was certainly plenty of talk about, you know, stockpiling PPE and that sort of stuff, but the government never did it. I think the problem isn't efficiency. Um, the problem is that we have the trade-off in the wrong place. So, you know, Holnagel talks about trading off thoroughness and efficiency. Mm -hmm. So if you're thorough, you're prepared for everything. But unfortunately, the downside of that is you never get anything done because you're because you're preparing for everything. The the other end of the spectrum spectrum is you're so efficient that you're running on the edge all of the time, um, and and therefore you, you you know the risk is you break down or you have you have no contingency, you have no capacity. So when everything anything hits you, it's a disaster has failed. The, the trick is getting, getting the balance right. So balancing efficiency and thoroughness and hitting that sweet spot. As in safety, it's all about hitting the sweet spot in the middle. Um, you know, so that you talked about cars. I think cars is a great example. Um, you know, if you ever have a puncture on the motorway in your car, um, and I did actually, I had a, I had a puncture in mine. And, um, you know, the, the, the tow truck guy comes out and he says, um, Actually, you don't have a puncture. Um, what's happened is your tires were underinflated when you left this morning. Um, you hit a rut in the road, and one of them's just been knocked loose a little bit, and it's deflated um, as a result. Do you ch do you check your tires every morning? I said no. You know, I don't check my tires every. I don't, I don't take my, check my tires any morning. Never mind every morning. <laughs> I said, oh, you should you should check your tires every single morning. Um, I said, oh, okay. You know, and you you kind of know you're meant to do that. You're meant to check the fluid levels and 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 your tires and, and you know all your lights every single morning, but you don't bother doing that because you need to be efficient. Because it's pointless. Because like ninety-nine times you check it, there'll be nothing wrong. Um, but it's that hundredth occasion or that thousandth occasion um, where something goes wrong. So um, he jumped, you know, he fixed my car. He jumped back in his truck without checking his tires and drove off. <laughs> um, so I got back in for the next couple of weeks or so, I walked around the car every single day and checked that the tires were all right. But after a month of doing that and finding nothing, I stopped doing it. So I'd moved from being very thorough, or rather I'd moved from being very efficient and not checking at all, to being very thorough, adding five minutes to my day every single day, checking the tires, to be going, you know, to go going back to being efficient. Somewhere in the middle is a trade-off like walking around once a week or walking around mm. once a month or whatever. Um, so I think it's, it's about hitting that sweet spot where you've got, you're prepared, but you're not overly prepared. You've got mm. capacity, but you don't have excess capacity such that 
that investment is draining upon your ability to do what you meant to do um, naturally. So there's a, there's a balance, I think, to be struck. Yeah, I, I really like that. That kind of re- re- reminds me of an example. I had a conversation off the back of a, a keynote I didn't done up in Sale, actually. It was in Sale Sharks Rugby Ground. Do you rugby fan? Okay, from? right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, uh, I'm actually a rugby league fan, yeah. Oh, God. If I'd known that, I wouldn't well, have was, joined a podcast. Well, I didn't think I would be, actually. It was that, and that comes from being in Australia, because when I got to Australia the very first day, I turned on the television thinking, I'll, I'll be able to watch, you know, soccer or cricket or something like that, or, I'll, I'll, you know, the All Blacks will be in town or something. And Rugby League came on, and I thought, oh, my God. And I remember Rugby League from my days growing up. You know, it was always a muddy pitch on television with Eddie Waring. I don't know if you ever remember Eddie Waring. And it was rubbish, you know, it was awful. Hmm. But this was a fast game, oh, really? you know, with real athletes playing it. Yeah, and so I really got into rugby league in, uh, in Australia, big supporter of the, the Brisbane Broncos um, and the Queensland side. And, and um, I, I really surprised myself. So, so I maintained that, that interest, yeah, but I there. never thought, yeah, I never thought I would be. So yeah, I, I tried. I tried to watch it a couple of times. So the the in- English version of it, and I just can't get into it. But anyway, anyway, um, and and the so the example I gave on, on this keynote was around um, was similarly to what we just spoke about, like, like forklift checks. So when I started in my career, well, I was in manufacturing, and we had this massive warehouse, and getting forklift checks done, like pre-use checks, was just a bane of my life. And we we looked at different types of checklists to make it easier, blah 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 blah. And and I would I've never achieved like the the level of of what we wanted to achieve, which is is pretty confident that everyone's checking their forklift. Um, and when I look back on it now, I think how would I approach it now? And I would probably or where would that trade off come in? For me, that trade off will come in on the paperwork. I would have removed the checklist and just said, right, you all know how to check the, the forklift, do you? Yeah, right, okay, no, you don't. We'll train you, et cetera, et cetera, right? Just please start doing it. Like, it only takes about 30 seconds to do a forklift check, right? Maybe a little bit longer, but it takes like a couple of seconds to do it. And But yet when you add the paperwork, that adds a couple of minutes because you've got to fill out the paperwork, you've got to store it there, or there's a, if you've got to store it somewhere else, you've then got to walk there. And it just becomes this bureaucratic process. And it, yeah. it kind of devalues the check itself. And I'd ask myself, what am I trying to aim to get here? Is it the check done or the checklist done? And when I look back on my career, I was trying to get the checklist done, not the check yeah. done. So I kind yeah. of feel like that trade-off comes in a lot of the time, not necessarily on the, on the actual task, but maybe the bit of the, that decluttering we need to do, like in David Proven's work that we mentioned earlier. I think yeah. that might shave a lot of that time that we kind of currently um, feel that we don't have. Yeah, and again, I think that people think they're doing the right thing by having all of this paperwork, you know, Dave talks about the work of safety and safety of work and the difference yeah. between the two, you know? Um, and I think people, they, they believe, well, we need the checklist, you know, because it pro- provides this auditable trail that's required by legislation. That, you know, most of these things are false because it's not required by legislation. The check's required by legislation, but the, the, the documentation of the check nearly always isn't. So there's a load of documentation that our management systems generate that 
on the grounds that it's required by legislation, but they're not really required by legislation. So there's a there's a kind of a whole forest of documentation exists on you know based upon a false premise that the um, that the organisation is required to generate it because legislation requires. Um, I think you're right. I think there's a trade-off there. Um, I, I like checklists sometimes, um, but I, I, I like the balance. I like balancing that documentation with the competencies of the individuals who are performing the task. And I would much rather always side with the competencies of the individuals. Uh, the example I've always drawn to is um, I worked in aviation for a while. I worked for British Airways for a while. Um, and I, I would never want a pilot to take off without having performed his minim, minim, minimum equipment checklist requirements. And that is, I need to, so it's a short checklist. I need to make sure the following are on board, that the oxygen system is charged in the event of a decompression, that we've got this, we've got that, and it's a pretty short checklist. But I also want the pilot to be able to fly through a storm. I don't want them to just be able to do a checklist. So there's this balance of this reassurance that what needs to be there is there, and the pilot signs off on that. But there's the competency of the pilot to handle anything, any situation that's thrown at him. Now, I think if you go back in time, back to the Industrial Revolution in, in, in the United Kingdom and Europe, we had a big agrarian workforce. Most of, the most of the people who came to industry worked in the fields. You know, they were used to plowing and, and doing that sort of stuff. They had no idea what machines were, and they had no idea how to be safe around them. And so it was entirely proper to have a bunch of rules, um, a bunch of training around how you stay safe around these machines because they were they were these were alien objects to the vast majority of people and therefore you know a plethora of rules grew up um, around individuals like this mm. fast forward now and we have a highly educated highly intelligent workforce highly competent highly qualified workforce that doesn't need the same sort of uh, control and constraint if mm. anything they need um, a system that allows them to be adaptive, allows them to be innovative, allows them to create new ways of working. Um, and so I think it's entirely proper that the balance of competency and paperwork shifts over the years towards a much more competency-based workforce and as, as a result, a lighter management system. But in practice, I don't think that's what we see happening. If mm -hmm. anything, we see this growth in bureaucracy and growth in rules um, and an ever-increased burden on individuals and organisations as, as a result. Mm. And, and I find it kind of this, the, the growth of, of this kind of very bureaucratic world that we're kind of in from a safety point of view, it's kind of ironic because I feel like it gives a lot of businesses a full sense of security. A lot of businesses think that uh, I've worked in it quite heavily on fire for, for the last few years. And, you know, the amount of fire risk assessments that I see the businesses believe right we've got that we're safe when if anything went wrong was well, actually i'm probably 100 percent confident that that fire assessment would be the one thing that actually sends them to jail yeah. as opposed yeah. to keeps them out but there's this mis yeah. there's this misconception that this paperwork's a thing that protects them 
Um, but actually, nine times out of ten, I think it genuinely would be the thing that actually um, ruins them. Yeah, and it's a, it's an ever increasing button. Interestingly, um, you know, the bigger the management system, the easier it will it, easier it will be for a regulator to find fault with it. Either because there's redundancy in there, there's contradiction in there, um, there are overburdensome requirements in there that you aren't able to meet. So, you know, you've said over the last uh, 12 months, you will do four inspections a week. So I'm looking for 48 records yeah. and you can only produce 47. <laughs> and it's the 48 that's the important one, you know, because you have your system has failed you. It's yeah. not the 47 you've got, it's the one that you don't have. Um, and interestingly, an organization's response to that normally is then to step up and increase mm. the frequency of checks. So in response to a regulator's um, request for information, they say, well, we're going to gold plate this in the future now. So rather than do one a month, we'll do one a week. Mm. Well, really? You, know, <laughs> you couldn't do one a month. Why, why do you think you're going to be able to do one a week now? There's a really good example of that. In I, I don't know if you've listened to the podcast uh, Cautionary Tales. Um, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's such yeah. a good podcast. But there's a really good example now where he talks about, um, Tim talks about um, where they got, I think it was the BAFTAs. They got the BAFTAs wrong and they nominated the wrong film. Um, and he goes through that that process of why they got it wrong. And it was such this, so complicated. This process was that how they kind of created all these complicated processes to what they thought was giving them capacity to fail. Well, actually, it was a thing that caused the failure yeah. and how they responded to it. He just drops, Tim just drops this one liner in at the end of the podcast. He goes, basically, FYI, how they fixed that problem was by adding another version of what they had. Um, which yeah. was, he's like, you've just added another complication. So that it, this happens yeah. all over the place, in, even in some of the biggest yeah. events that we see in the world. It, it does. It does. You know, so there's this belief rules are good. You know, if you don't have a rule, then we should have one. Do we have a rule for this? No, we don't have a rule. Well, we, have, we really should have one. Let's write a rule. Um, and then it's a check and a check, you know. So, uh, well, the induction wasn't done. Um, right, well, we need to, first of all, we need to do the induction and then we need to check the inductions being done. So we'll have a record and then we'll have a check of the record. You know, really? Mm. Uh, you just add these layers of, of complication and complexity. Rather than make the system safer, it just increases the opportunity to make it obscure, uh, you know, and confusing and, and less efficient, if anything. Mm. So, uh, you know, and, and again, I think, Management systems were, were never designed actually to make organizations more efficient. Management systems were actually design, designed in an era where only a few people in an organization should make decisions. They were, gen they were made to slow things down mm. so that the information reaching those who had to make a decision was arriving at a rate that they could cope with and it wasn't arriving quickly. So management systems introduced checks and balances to slow things down. Geez, the last thing we need nowadays are things slowed down, mm. um, you know, through bureaucracy and, and stuff like that. It's, uh, yeah, um, but that's not to say all rules are bad, because um, they aren't. Um, mm. Rules make sense in high-risk situations, and they make sense, and they make sense to the people they apply to in high-risk situations. Mm. What they don't um, make sense is when you, you know, you have a proliferation of rules in low risk situations that, you know, 
people know they're never going to be able to com comply with nonsense rules. Um, whereas the um, the high risk situations are not being dealt with, not being dealt with properly, and that's not. I don't think that's that's clever safety. You know, I think that's lazy safety. Actually, you know, pulling people up for small violations, this constant war on error that we have, and failing actually to control these high risk situations. That's not good safety. That's lazy safety. Yeah, definitely. Do you, do you think do you see there's I'm conscious you've got to shoot in a minute, but there's one last thing I kind of wanted to touch on. Do you do you see that there's like a a bit of a positive shift? I feel like personally the UK is a bit behind maybe some of the other countries in this maybe way of thinking. I'm happy to be corrected, um, but but like when we're seeing like say professional memberships starting to review their their competency structures, um, you mentioned earlier about you know there's a different type of professional we're getting now. Um, there's a lot more conversations around, uh, around a bit more of a people focused approach as opposed to a technical po uh, focused approach and, and yeah. so on and so forth. Like, I feel like we're just starting to dip our toe in this and, and like the big organizations, the enforcers, the professional memberships and so on and so forth. I feel like they're starting to just take notice of this stuff and take it seriously. And whereas before, I don't know, I, I felt like the the it was a little bit. Oh, my camera's just gone. I'm still here, but my camera's just gone. Yeah. Um, carry on. But I um I, I feel like it was a bit uh like they were a bit maybe scared of it. They needed to see it work first. Would that be fair? Yeah, yeah. So the, I mean, change is always difficult. Uh, you know, there's always a resistance to change, and I don't think it's just safety that's changing in the respect of of professional. Uh, competencies, behaviours, and and that sort of stuff. I think the world is, you know, the nature of work is changing, and therefore, I think we're looking for, um, you know, different competencies in the people that uh, that complete that work. There's, it's a much more knowledge-based uh, economy. Uh, as a result, you need different qualities and characteristics within the individuals. So I think one change makes people nervous, um, and two, it's a pretty big change, not just for individuals, but for organizations, because it applies across the world. I think there are economies that are making the change in safety a little bit quicker and better than we are. I think Australia is a good example. Um, part of that is because Australia doesn't have a huge industrial legacy, um, whereas in Europe we do. Um, you know, so we've got legislation dating back hundreds of years. Um, we have an approach to safety that date back, dates back hundreds of years, and we've got a philosophical set of beliefs that date back thousands of years. If you go to the Far East, you have a different philosophical view of life and therefore a different view of safety. And that's not because industries are different. It's because people have been brought up in a, in a philosophical different environment, and, mm -hmm. and as a result, their beliefs are different. So we've got 600 years of industrial legacy we have to undo. Um, or deal with rather. Um, Australia doesn't have that. It hasn't even got 600 years of history, um, you know, <laughs> from a colonial perspective that it's got to deal with, uh, and America even less. So I think there are reasons why there are different states of maturity in different parts of the world. I think you're right. I think there are plenty of reasons to be optimistic um, about where we're headed. I, I, I think the work that we've done. Um, on COVID, for instance, as a profession, has been exemplary. And I think the opportunity um, to get really involved in big business decisions and shape how businesses attack these big problems is sitting in front of us. Mm -hmm. And I think our 
currency has certainly improved as a result of, uh, you know, every cloud is silver lining. Our currency has certainly improved as a result of COVID. I think our value is seen more by organisations than probably it's been seen before. So I think there are plenty of reasons to be optim optimistic. God, if it was all about being pessimistic, I don't think I'd be doing this. Um, <laughs> I don't think I'd be certainly spouting my beliefs online, um, you know, because it certainly sets you up for a bit of challenge. But that's that's cool. That's cool. Do you think there needs to be a bit more of a pathway for so people like um, the, Adam Johns kind of springs to mind? I don't. I think you know Adam, don't you? Yeah, I do. He kind of springs to mind. Is probably one of one of the most impressive safety professionals I have spoke to in a long time. But he's not yeah. a safety professional. Like he's an aviation safety professional. So so now when yeah. he's shifting over, he he's re he's kind of struggling to to get into this traditional safety world because. We, we don't recognize his his competence we, we we you know got people saying to to adam oh, where's your knee bosh and i would yeah. i would definitely employ adam over anyone that has a knee bosh and i have a knee bosh so i'm saying employ adam instead of employing me um but but we seem to be very um like kind of like we've got the blinkers on we're not very open to that diverse yeah we, we, we're still very technically locked in to to competencies so you know you're a construction safety professional if you've got NEBOSH and the NEBOSH construction set. You're an aviation safety professional because you've worked in aviation for 10 years. And yet you're right, you know, if you've got Adam in front of a, um, an interviewing panel, they'd snap them up. Mm. Um, but they probably wouldn't give his CV a second look exactly. because they consider it to be inappropriate. Um, uh, so th there still is this tendency to look on as the, the premier marker for whether or not someone's suitable. But I think that's changing as well. I, I think, you know, you look at the qualifications that are coming out, Nibosh are re-looking re at the content of some of their stuff. I know that IOSH is re-looking at the content of some of its stuff and it's weaving more and more adaptive thinking, learning teams um, into its qualifications. So okay. I'd like to see those, those bodies take much more of a lead on, on the content of those courses, but, I mean, some of these courses are big money makers for those organizations, you know, um, commercially, they're, they're the cash cow of, of organizations like Nibosh and IOSH. Um, so I think, again, I think there's, there's, there's reasons for, for optimism. Um, but, I, but we also need to look at the university courses. We need to look at mm. how we attract, you know, are we attracting the right sort of people? Because um, if we're attracting the right sort of people, with the characteristics that we, they want, they're likely to rail against the type of, of learning that is provided to them by, by those institutions in the future. Um, so I think we need to you know, look at how do, we, how do we sell the profession to, to young people in schools? Um, how do we make it attractive in university or in colleges to do safety? Definitely, yeah. Um, how do we influence those course designers to include those different elements? I mean, I, I think the syllabus for a modern safety course could be absolutely fantastic. You know, you yeah. talk about, um, you know, neurolinguistics or, you know, neuroscience, you talk about psychology, you talk about law, you talk about engineering, all mm. of the really cool stuff that mm. gets done in the world wrapped in one course yeah. with the view to saying, your job is to enable success in an organization, not control and constraint, 
your job is, is, an, is to enable success through all of those routes, go out and do it. I think you'd have people queuing up Definitely. to join our profession. It's all been that way. I love that. I, I, like, I agree. I have no, no more words other than that. that <laughs> I wholeheartedly agree. I'm on the IOSH Future Leaders Steering Group. Yeah. And we've got an amazing group of people and we, you know, all talking about that same, that same problem is that we, we need, you know, we need fresh young professionals. We need different professionals that are coming, coming to a second career. We need them all. But the problem yeah. is they're looking at this and just seeing control and restraint. They're seeing compliance and stuff like that. What they're not seeing is that, you know, human factors, that psychological side of it, that social science side of it, you know, the engineering, you, you, you know, you, you're looking and talking to a lawyer one day and then potentially talking to like a human factors psychologist the next day, you know, whatever job allows you to do that. It's an amazing job. But John, yeah. I am need to go. So it's all right. And then you're talking to steel fixer or a bricklayer. You know, yeah, exactly. It's absolutely brilliant. It's, yeah. it's brilliant. And that's actually, those reasons are the reasons I joined this profession 42 years ago. Um, strangely enough, they're just, they appear to be becoming important again. Everything goes in cycles, doesn't it? Yeah, sure does. Sure does. Right. I'm conscious you need to go, buddy. So I'm, I'm, I can no talk to you all day. Uh, but thank you very much for that. And um, if, if people wanted to, I don't know, if people wanted to find your stuff or work with you and what, what you're doing at the moment or. Is there any way people so can they can contact me on LinkedIn. Um, I've got a we've, we've got a few uh, virtual conferences coming up that I'm speaking at. So we've got um, one that's been organised by a Spanish organisation. Sydney and I are doing that. Um, then there's always the uh, Paul Clark HSE Global Series stuff yep. that I'm involved in. Um, but if anyone wants to drop me an email um, or connect with me on LinkedIn, I'm more than happy to you know continue. Uh, um, discussion with them on on anything they want to talk about awesome that's cool yeah grand i'll put um all those details in the description for everyone as well so thank you very much all right james you take it easy okay guys hope you enjoyed that conversation with john if you did give us a rate and review if you listen on itunes otherwise just hit follow spotify follow on spotify or subscribe on youtube etc etc or if you really liked it you can give it a share to someone we would love that that really helps let us know any of this stuff you do and let us know what you thought about the episode on Twitter, Rebranded Safety, or on LinkedIn and Facebook and Rebranded Safety. You'll come find me on LinkedIn at Rebranded, uh, my name's not Rebranded Safety, James McPherson on LinkedIn. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. Don't forget to listen next week for my thoughts, feelings, and reflection on this conversation. Catch you next week. Safe.